from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. A warning. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Some names are censored for privacy reasons. Killing Joanne the way she was killed, somebody with a sexual dysfunction ended up in that apartment, and it just didn't go well. For decades, Melissa DeBoer believed that somebody was Rodney Lincoln. Since late 2015, she says she knows with every fiber of her being, it's not him. It's somebody else. Who do you think killed your mom? Tommy Lintels, without a doubt. I'm Leah Rothman. This is The Real Killer. Episode 7, Tommy, or Who? Hello. Hello, Diane. How are you? Doing well, thank you. I am definitely not the first person who's asked who killed Joanne Tate and attacked young Melissa and Renee. But because Melissa now believes Tommy Lynn Sells is the perpetrator, I need to learn more about him. So I go to Diane Fanning. She's the author who was interviewed on Crime Watch Daily in 2015 about her extensive research and six years' worth of phone calls, letters, and at least 20 in-person interviews she did with him for her book, Through the Window. It was Diane's interview, among other things, that had such a big impact on Melissa. Tell me a little bit about your background, when you, how you became interested in writing and, and becoming a true crime writer. I had been um, the victim of an abduction 
attempt when I was nine years old. I was walking to the local uh, little country store near where we lived. The man asked for directions. He reached out when I came over to look at his map and he grabbed hold of my upper arm. He tried to pull me in the car. I was fighting him, but it was, it was a losing battle. Just then, another car came over the hill and laid on his horn. The guy took off with his car door still open and I memorized the license plate number. When I went home, I told my mother, she called the police and they stopped that man and found the evidence in his trunk of the sexual assault and murder of an eight-year-old the month before. My God, that is terrifying. It was, it was weird because instead of uh, so much wallowing in that fear, my way of coping was to get information. I, you know, I was getting books out of the library that were way above my head about criminal psychology and stuff and trying to find answers to my two big questions. Why me? And how could anybody do this? Years later, questions like these will come up again. I've been interested in writing for quite some time, uh, since my eighth grade teacher told me I had talent. But I didn't really get busy with it till I spent a lot of time in radio, television, and advertising agency work, and then moved to nonprofit. And then a case came along that rang my chimes. That case started in the middle of the night on December 31st, 1999, outside Del Rio, Texas. A man comes through an open window, and although there's a house full of people, he enters the room where two young girls are sleeping. On the bottom bunk is 13-year-old Kayleen Katie Harris. The man sexually assaults her, slashes her neck twice, and stabs her 16 times. He then moves on to her friend who's on the top bunk, 10-year-old Crystal Searles. He cuts her throat, she falls to the ground, and plays dead. The man eventually leaves, and Crystal, believing everyone in the house has been murdered, runs barefoot a quarter of a mile down the dirt road to the nearest neighbor. At the hospital, with a severed windpipe and grazed carotid artery, Crystal works with a police sketch artist and comes up with a composite drawing of the perpetrator. Within a day, Crystal is shown a photo lineup, and she picks out 36-year-old Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells, a used car salesman who had met the Harris family at church and had been to their home on multiple occasions, is apprehended and confesses. And I'm Tommy They put me under arrest for murdering. Later that day, he agrees to go with investigators to the Harris house. Day date's January 2nd, year 2000. This is 1.02 p.m. We're back at the crime scene. You're doing this walkthrough of your own free will? Oh, yeah. During the grainy, videotaped walkthrough of the crime scene, Tommy Lynn Sells is not handcuffed. 
He's husky. He's got a dark brown curly mullet and a scruffy beard. He's wearing jeans and a multicolored shirt. He shows investigators how he crawled through the window, walked through the house, then chose Katie and Crystal's room to enter. The video is chilling. From time to time, Tommy Lincells looks directly into the camera. His tone is matter-of-fact. At one point, he stops and ties his shoe. I stood here for a minute, and then I looked in here, and there's uh, two girls sleeping in here. I woke this girl up. How'd you do that? Uh, she wake up. Wake up. Okay, I understand. Uh, and then she jumped up and went on all before that. I, I cut her bra and, and I cut the side of her, uh, whatever she was wearing. Uh, shorts. And shorts. Yeah, yeah. And, and she jumped up and told this girl to go get her mom. Uh-huh. And, and you mean this girl, when you say this girl, there was a girl sleeping in the top off also? Yeah, yeah. And she tried to come over here, and I stabbed her, like right here somewhere. You got a knife with you? Yeah. And it say that. It was, uh, what kind of knife do you have? Was, uh, a, big, a big butcher knife type. Okay. And then she like jumped back and then, you know, uh, cut her like, like this right here. With an imaginary knife in his right hand, Tommy Lincells slashes the throat of the investigator. And she fell down right here. And then uh, I, re- I think I done, reached down there and done it one more time. And this little girl up here, uh, I say little girl, that's like, uh, I walked over here and I went like this. Standing to the left of the top bunk, where the pillow would be, Sells again uses his right hand to make a slashing motion. Now this is, you just went over here and this girl was still sleeping or what? No, she was away. She was? Was she moving, trying to get away or something? She just laid there. He's completely cavalier. There's no remorse in his voice. It's haunting. I'm glad this is over with. I'm glad it's over with. Why are you glad it's over with? Do you think, Tom, you, you would have continued, maybe? Oh, I know without a doubt. Over the next few months, Tommy Lynn Sells confesses to killing men, women, and children from New York to Los Angeles using knives, guns, baseball bats, and his bare hands. He gets by working as a mechanic, a carny, and a day laborer. He also panhandles. And he evades capture by hopping trains, hitchhiking, and stealing cars. In the course of almost 20 years, the self-proclaimed coast-to-coast killer confesses to more than 70 crimes. Texas Rangers can only verify 22. Diane Fanning learns about Tommy Lincells in the year 2000. Here's Diane again. I did not find out about Crystal Searles and Katie Harris's harrowing experiences until after Tommy Lynn Sells 
had been convicted and uh, was given the death sentence. And that's when I wanted to write about him. At first, uh, all he wanted was money. I also then went through a phase with him where all he wanted to do was talk sex to me on the phone, which was not something I was interested in. Once I got to the point that he was calling me his friend, I was able to get extensive information. But the thing about cells that I found very odd is some days I had a hard time getting him focusing on crimes because he just wanted to joke around. And then other times he would go out of his way to try to shock and disgust me. He would become very, very graphic with the description of how he killed someone. Um, and then other times he was just very matter of fact talking about his crimes. And the only time that I really, f he made me feel anything other than kind of disgust was when he talked to me about what happened to him in his childhood. It was horrible how he grew up. And it was so horrible, I found it not to be very credible. So I called his mother and I said, listen, I want to tell you what Tommy has said about his childhood. And I want you to tell me, you know, what's not right and what you remember. And we got all through it. And she did not once contradict anything that he said. All she said at the end was, well, there are a lot of kids that have it worse and they don't go out killing people. On June 28, 1964, Tommy Lynn Sells is born a twin. When they're 18 months old, his sister becomes ill and dies. He's sent to live with his aunt. Eventually, his mom wants him back. But that doesn't last long. She allowed him to go live with a pedophile. And did she know that this man was a pedophile or... She claims now that she didn't, but I, it was a small town. I, I think she had to know that the only people this man spent time with were young boys. Mm -hmm. And um, Tommy told me about the experience of his first night and when it was over, how he curled up in his bed and cried and imagined himself on a rocket ship shooting out into space. My heart broke listening to him. I think it was the most genuine he ever was with me. And so how long did this abuse go on at the hands of this pedophile? I think it was about three, three and a half years. He was about seven. And uh, once he was 10, he sort of outgrew his appeal to the pedophile. Mm. And then he went back with his mother for a while. And um, at one point she was running a bar and she was selling 
Tommy out of the bar. She was literally pimping her child? Yes, she called him her little whore. Mm. To men and women? I think it was mostly to women at that time. So what happens next? He leaves home at 15 and starts uh, just wandering. Um, He uh, went down to Mississippi and accidentally killed a man there. And he was out in California and got into a fight with another man and he had an ice pick and he killed the man. Um, Neither one of those were planned murders. But he found out from that experience how satisfying it was to him to be able to have the power to take a person's life. Tell me about the Dardines. This is a particularly gruesome story. It takes place in 1987 in Ina, Illinois, about 90 miles outside St. Louis. Oh, the Dardines were a horrible, dark, miserable case. I am certain that Sells committed that crime. Uh, He told me that the reason he uh, targeted the Dardines was because the father in the family had sexually propositioned him. Now, Sells imagines things from people. He assumes what they're thinking based on the way his disordered mind works. There is nothing in all the history of Mr. Dardine that shows any indication whatsoever that he had any interest in men. It just isn't there. He sat out not far from the home on a a little rise and there was a whole big patch of of cigarette butts. The police could tell just where the person sat. And the house was for sale at the time. So Tommy approached the house as a potential buyer. They let him in. He pulled a gun. He made uh, Elaine Ruby Dardine tie up her husband. Now she was very pregnant, like eight months pregnant. And he, he took her and tied her arms, tied up their little three-year-old boy and said that they better stay here or their father won't come back alive. So then he took Mr. Jardine to a location a little ways away and he shot him and cut off his penis. He then returned to the house where he let Elaine watch while he used a baseball bat 
to beat the three-year-old boy to death. Then he started beating Elaine. At some point in the middle of her beating, she went into labor. Tommy sat back and watched. And once the baby was born, he held it up and beat it with a baseball bat while that poor mother had to watch the death of a child again. He then beat her, wrote on her body with a pair of scissors and crammed the uh, baseball bat inside her before he left. God, it's just so awful. (laughs) There aren't even words. No. It needs to be said that many believe a lot of Tommy Lynn Sell's confessions are BS. And people are split on whether or not he committed the heinous acts in the Dardeen case. Some say he knew details which were never released to the public. Others say that's not true. Reportedly, Tommy Lynn Sells said he could lead investigators to missing evidence in the case, but because the state of Texas doesn't allow death row prisoners to be taken across state lines, that never happened. Due to insufficient evidence, Tommy Lynn Sells was never charged with the Dardeen murders. Sells only had one murder conviction, and it was for that 1999 slaying of Katie Harris in Del Rio, Texas. In 2003, Sells was indicted but never tried for killing 13-year-old Stephanie Mahaney in Springfield, Missouri. And he did plead guilty to capital murder for killing another young girl, 9-year-old Mary Beatrice Perez. She had been abducted, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death in San Antonio in April 1999, eight months before and 150 miles away from the Katie Harris and Crystal Searle scene in Del Rio. And even though there was a barrier between you two, you and Tommy Lynn Sells, did you feel... I never exactly knew which cells I would see when I went into that uh, visitation room. And one time I, I quoted something from a sheriff that really made him angry. And he stood up, he pounded with those with his fists on the little table surface he had there. And he raised his head and looked up at me. And Leah, I swear, the shape of his face changed. The color of his eyes changed. I felt like I was looking at a different person. And I realized at that moment that I was seeing what his victim saw at the last moment before they died. It was terribly frightening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Do you have any of Sells' letters nearby? I got, I've got letters. Um, his, his writing is definitely not polished. But then he didn't learn to read and write until he was in prison in West Virginia. So it's understandable. Here's an example. About how did I know about that one murder? Diane, I know about a lot more murder than we ever come close to talk about. I can pull one a day out and not be done for a long time. A murder doesn't always have to do with sex or any of the norms you all may want to label or tag me with. Maybe someone just pissed me off and I did not want their child to be like them. That's cold, I understand. Maybe a more than just one person is in prison for the same thing. Wow. And there's something else Tommy Linsell says about people in prison. He said, there are a whole lot of people sitting in prison for crimes that I committed, and I don't care. Which brings us to Rodney Lincoln, Joanne Tate, and Crime Watch Daily. I went on Crime Watch Daily to talk about the Rodney Lincoln case. Here is what I think about the possibility of Tommy Lincells committing this crime, this murder of Joanne Tate. Tommy Lincells told me more than once, there are other crimes I've committed I'm not gonna talk about because they happened in the area of St. Louis and I have family there. I will not admit to any one of those. And just to be clear, Tommy Lincells was from St. Louis? Yes, although he traveled all over the country, St. Louis was his home. That was where his family was. And he would not give up any crimes in that area. And if his confessions are to be believed, maybe there's more. He um, had inserted 
a baseball bat in the Dardine case into the woman's body. He had uh, done the same with a wrench inside another victim's body. And there was Joanne with a broomstick. That is a peculiarity of a crime that points towards cells. Melissa said that, you know, she first said Bill did it. And then she started to remember more details like Bill drove a yellow taxi. And then she said Bill worked on her mom's car. And he also then drove a white VW. Any of those details ring true with with Sells? Sells was working at his uncle's VW dealership in um, St. Louis, repairing Volkswagens. Sells was uh, an expert car mechanic. He, even when he was in the Del Rio jail, helped fix cars for the sheriff's department. And although Melissa said his name was Bill, Sells often just dropped names that weren't his and used them for the moment. His father was named William, so it would be it would be a natural thing for him to assume the name Bill. And Tommy Lynn Sells also spent time in Hollywood. Remember, Melissa said Bill had too. There are enough similarities to Sells' mo- means of operation to uh, Sell's behavioral patterns and to the connection with his father's name of William. You throw all these things together, this sounds so much like him. This reeks of Tommy Lynn Sells. Does that mean absolutely positively it was Tommy Lynn Sells? No, but I think there's a very high probability that Tommy Lincells is responsible for the murder of Joey and Tate and the assault of Melissa and Renee. On April 3rd, 2014, at the age of 49, Tommy Lincells is executed by the state of Texas. When asked if he wants to make a final statement, he reportedly says no, then smiles, the lethal injection begins, he closes his eyes and begins to snore. Katie Harris's father, who's there that day, tells reporters, quote, Basically, the dude just took a nap. Tommy Lynn Sells is pronounced dead at 6.27 p.m. In 2016, after Melissa recants, the attorney general's office, while preparing for that evidentiary hearing in Cole County, does some digging into Tommy Lynn Sells, too. Susan Clevenger from the AG's office calls one of Sells' brothers, Tim Sells. They discuss the Volkswagen repair shop where they worked, whether or not Tommy has all of his fingers, which he did. Remember the funny finger story? And they talk about where Sells was in late April of 1982, when Joanne Tate was murdered. 33 years later, it's obviously hard for Tim to remember. He suggests Susan Clevenger speak with his ex-wife, Tracy Sells. 
Hello. Hey, Tracy. This is Susan Clevenger um, from the Attorney General's office. Mm-hmm. Like with Tim Cells, they spent a lot of time trying to nail down whether or not Tommy Lynn Cells was in St. Louis late April 1982. Tracy doesn't remember exactly what month in 1982 Tommy was in town, but she does remember when he was there, he was living at another brother's house. This brother's name is Terry. And she remembers one day in particular they had all planned to go to the zoo together. Well, I can tell you something. There was this this time, and it was probably, I would say, early 82. Okay. And Tommy was always one that wanted to go, go, go. And for some reason, he didn't want to go. And I thought that was really, it stood out in my mind because he always wanted to go. And this time you couldn't get him to go. Mm-hmm. And that evening when we came home, his Terry's wife found her nightgown covered in semen. And Terry took him down in the basement and whipped him with a belt. And they had a little dog that wouldn't come out from under the couch for two weeks. And its, it's bottom was bleeding. And there's more. A lot of people just didn't want him around. How did you How did you feel when he was? I mean, what What were What was your thought process whenever Whenever he was coming around, or you thought he might be staying? Well, when I first met him, I I I just felt like something was weird and creepy about him. And I started dating Tim, and his mother came to me one night and told me that he had tried to get in the shower with her. And that he tapped her on the shoulder. He got in naked and tapped her on the shoulder and said, I'm going to have you. And he tried to rape her, and she fought him off. And the windows were open, and she was screaming. And he said, all right, I'll let you go. I'll let you go, but don't tell anyone. And he ran off, and he was gone for two weeks. And then he came back, and everyone just acted like nothing ever happened. Yeah. So, of course, naturally, you were keeping your guard up whenever he was around or made right. sure that Tim or someone yeah. else was around. Yeah. And it was always something, you know, he'd get with some girl and then she'd say he tried to molest her child and, and nobody ever called the police though. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever reported that stuff. Yeah. But and I know about you know, a few different incidents, at least um probably five incidents instances where he molested someone's kid and they didn't even report it. Vile and disturbing to say the very least. But all that horrendousness aside, the question still remains. Where was Tommy Lynn Sells on April 27th, 1982? According to police reports and court documents from Paragold, Jonesboro, and Greene County, Arkansas, Tommy Lynn Sells was arrested on April 3rd, 1982 for stealing a car. At the time, he's 17 years old, 5'8 and 120 pounds, brown hair and hazel eyes. On April 14th, he pleads guilty and is sentenced to two months at Consolidated Youth Services, CYS, in Jonesboro, Arkansas, basically a juvenile hall. This is where the controversy comes in. 
the Attorney General's office believes Tommy Lynn Sells was at CYS serving his two months at the time of Joanne's murder. Others say, not so fast. There's no proof he was actually there. So I called Consolidated Youth Services and was told they won't go on the record to talk about Tommy Lynn Sells because he was a minor at the time. The woman refers me to the documents handed over to the Attorney General's office. I have those documents. And while they say Tommy Lynn Sells was arrested and sentenced to two months at CYS, there's no documentation saying he actually arrived, served his time, and left two months later. Here's Rodney's attorney, Sean O'Brien. He was supposed to have been in a juvenile facility in Jonesboro. And I actually talked to his lawyer, a man named Harry Truman Moore, uh, who is still in the practice of law, uh, who said, uh, who represented Tommy Sells on that. Uh, And he said, yeah, he was let out of court and he was supposed to show up at that facility, but there's no guarantee that he did. Tommy Lynn Sells' attorney, H.T. Moore, wrote an affidavit about this, which was submitted to the court. I have it. And it reads in part this, quote, The court file does not reflect that Mr. Sells was delivered to CYS, and I doubt that was done. The sheriff's office was very lax in those days. Even if Mr. Sells had been delivered to CYS, the program was about as secure as a sieve. It was overloaded and understaffed. Teenagers walked away all the time, and authorities would rarely pursue them. Based on my review of the court file and my knowledge of local law enforcement institutions and their practices in 1982, the only conclusion that one can definitely reach from the court file in State v. Sells is that he was released from the Greene County Jail on April 14, 1982. Anything beyond that is speculation. So where was Tommy Lynn Sells on April 27, 1982? Is it possible he left the courthouse on April 14th and stole a car or hitchhiked the roughly 220 miles back to his hometown of St. Louis in those 13 days before the murder? We may never know. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Besides Tommy Lynn Sells, there's someone else. Another potential person of interest in Joanne Tate's murder and her daughter's brutal attacks. Steve Yancey. Remember, he was Joanne's 17-year-old neighbor who came to the house that morning and talked with police. I was reading old newspaper articles about the crime, and I had, you know, the police reports sitting next to me at the same time, and, and this name came up in both. In 2011, Nadia Flom, journalist and brand new Midwest Innocence Project investigator, is asked to look at Rodney Lincoln's case. Fresh eyes, right? Well, she sees something that immediately catches her attention. Steve Yancey, a neighbor, a teenage neighbor, and he's interviewed. And then to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he said um, that he knew Joanne and that she was perfect. And I was like, that is weird. Like, that's a really weird thing to say. Well, so based on just how weird that struck me, I was like, well, this guy was like 17 at the time, um, but where is he now? And lo and behold, Steve Yancey, who was in a prison in Norton, Kansas. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So Nadia writes to him, requesting an interview, but through his attorney, he declines. That does not stop Nadia. Turns out, since 2008, Steve Yancey's been in prison for a crime he committed with his wife, Tara Yancey. And I was like, I wonder what she has to say. And so she had no idea what we were there for. And she was like, I don't know what this is about, but she was perfectly cheerful and nice. Um, And she wasn't like suspicious and weirded out by us at all. She just like sat right down and was like, okay, let's go. Describe her for me. She's like a pleaser. Like she wants to do what you want her to do. She was kind of willing to tell us anything she could. And so that's when I realized that we needed to be really careful about not giving away too much about too many details just to see what she organically knows. What did Tara Yancey tell you about her crimes, why she was in prison? She um, she told us that she and Steve... When they got married, they lived in a house that was just a couple houses down or a block away from um, her family and some young cousins. She said she had had a rough childhood and that she told her little cousins that um, if they ever felt unsafe at their house, if they just wanted to get away, like, don't run away, just come over to my house. 
and you'll be safe here. So her cousins were used to coming over and they were like, you know, eight and 11, like just younger kids. And according to Tara, Steve tells her to have sex with her 11-year-old male cousin. And she just said really matter-of-factly, so I had sex with my cousin. Tara Yancey's doing time for rape. And Steve Yancey, whom investigators believed was the ringleader, is serving time for kidnapping and sexual battery for the rape of Tara's cousin. What else did Tara tell you about her relationship with Steve? Had he ever been violent with her, physical? He said he tried to kill her. She said that she was sitting at the computer and she was looking something up and he came in and saw her at the computer and just somehow like lost it and like tossed the computer, grabbed her by a wrist, like threw her against the wall, put his hand on her throat. And then like, and she just, she said she like looked at his face and she's like, he's going to kill me. And then suddenly like that look passed and he like dropped her. But she was like, he could have killed me. Tara shares more about her husband and what she learned about him secondhand. When she got to know his mother, she found out that he had raped his, he he lived in a house with like sisters and stepsisters and stepbrothers and brothers. And he had been um, like sexually molesting, um, had just been causing really awful chaos at his mother's house. And rather than call the police, his mother told Tara that she didn't want testifying against him. So she just thought it would be best to get him out of the house and forget about it. So she sent Steve to live with his grandmother on Ferrar Street where Joanne lived. And so that explained why Steve Yancey was Joanne's neighbor because he was living with his grandmother because he'd been kicked out of his house for raping Those crimes aren't reported, but others are. In 1984, in St. Louis County, just two years after Joanne's murder and the attack on Melissa and Renee, Steve Yancey pleads guilty to sodomy and sexual abuse in the first degree. Both victims are under 14 years old. And in 1992, in Jefferson County, he pleads guilty to sex abuse and forcible sodomy. He's sentenced to 10 years in prison. But Nadia wants to know if Steve himself ever confessed to Tara he'd committed any crimes. Nadia's in no way prepared for the answer she's about to get. And she said, well, um, I know that he killed someone, but I don't really, I don't really know all the details. And I'm like, well, how did that come out? And she said, well, she had found out that he lied to her, that he had a, that he did have a criminal record and that his criminal record included child molestation. And she had a kid with him. And so she starts poking him about it and bugging him about it. And when he finally is like, ugh, like, fine, I'll tell you. Um, She says he said that he was in a house with a woman and two little girls. And in her head, the woman seemed like it it was a babysitter. But 
we did, you know, we weren't correcting her. We were just like, uh-huh, a woman and two girls. And she said the woman um, had to go out for a second, like run an errand. And while she was gone, Steve started doing something to one of the girls and was caught in the act when she got home. And so he had to kill her. And I was like, what else did he say? Um, and she's like, you know, he's the kind of person, if he's told you once, you don't ask again. Um, but, you know, that stood out. I think she she said that she did ask again, though. And he said it was a bloody mess. And if you had seen the crime scene photos, you would know it was me. And we asked her why she thought he said that. And she didn't know. Um, you know, we asked her really personal questions about whether he'd ever, during sex, used an object on her, whether he was into anal sex, whether he just, you know, liked weird penetration. And she said that once he put some markers in her vagina to see how many would fit, and that it was sort of came from the fact that he was ashamed about his penis size. But, you know, there's still no smoking gun here, but it was, it was, I mean, Marie and I looked at each other, uh, our paralegal and I were doing this in this interview with Tara. And when she said a woman and two little girls, like, I know that we just both looked at each other like, Holy shit. And at that point, I felt like this is the first time I've ever done this, not as a reporter, but as, you know, an extension of a legal process. And I felt pretty like like a pretty big novice. Like, what do I do with this? Um, so we wrote down with Tara kind of like a basic um, summary of what she had said. And she signed it. And then, you know, I figured we'd take this back to the office and let somebody with a law degree go from there. Although Tara Yancey is interviewed a second time, nothing substantial ever comes from those interviews with her. It seems, in 2011, the Midwest Innocence Project put their resources into focusing on the DNA motion, not Steve Yancey. Then there is a changing of the guard at MIP, and with a new attorney in charge, they go back to investigate Tara Yancey's claims. But before they know it, Melissa recants. So, could it be Steve Yancey? I mean, could he have been describing the Joanne Tate murder scene to his wife, Tara? Sounds close, but it doesn't seem to totally fit Melissa's memory. Remember, Melissa said she woke up to her mom lying on the floor. The man then attacked her before moving on to her little sister, Renee. Here's former MIP investigator Dan Grothaus. We know what Melissa recalled. We don't, what about her little sister? We don't know what happened to her little sister before. That's so um, true. I've never considered that because Melissa, right, we don't know what the perpetrator may have done to Renee prior to what happened to Melissa. But if Steve Yancey's the guy, why, when Melissa's in the hospital and shown his photo, didn't she pick him out as their attacker? And why didn't police look at him more closely? Here's Nadia again. 
I think, you know, what really gets me about Steve Yancey is that he um, could, he was just too young to be a suspect, but, and so he was easily overlooked at the time. Um, you know, through no fault of investigators or detectives, um, he didn't come up on any radar and he's just a kid. So, I mean, to me, it's sort of like the perfect opportunity to get away with something horrific. On the other hand, it's not really his MO. You know, he likes doing, manipulating people, you know, assaulting children. Um, but he's never, there's no other murders he's suspected of. There's not like anything extremely violent in his history that I know of. Tara Yancey was released from prison in 2011. I reached out to her to see if she'd be willing to talk, but I haven't heard back. And I wrote to Steve Yancey. He actually wrote me back. About Joanne, he writes, quote, Yes, I knew her. I was just a teenage kid dating a 30-something woman. It was only a few weeks or so before the crime happened. Here's Dan again. For him to say he dated Joanne is a strong admission of a problem. He was some 17-year-old kid, and he had no business dating her. But that was my suspicion, is that, you know, they were playing around. And there's more from Steve Yancey. Quote, Yes, I was a friend of the family, and no, I was never a babysitter. But remember, Melissa said in that 1983 deposition that a boy from the neighborhood named Stephen used to watch her and Renee when Joanne went out. Here's Nadia again. He babysat for the the girls and he had played Uno with them. And that also creeped me out because there was an Uno card on the floor in one of the crime scene photos. Steve Ancy goes on to say, If you are with the Innocence Project trying to help that guy get out of prison, then I really have nothing to offer you. He concludes with, even after all these years, it is still a soft spot. They were a shining spot in my young life that became a painful memory. Respectfully yours, Stephen Yancey. So I write him back asking if he'd be willing to talk on the phone. No reply. I write again, this time, He responds. Before reading the whole letter, my eyes quickly scan the page looking for key words and phrases, and they land on this, quote, I'm going to add your number and inform you as soon as it's approved so we can work out a time best for you. Steve Yancey's going to talk. You absolutely need to go talk to him. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Get him talking. If you could ask Stephen Yancey anything, what would you ask him? Are you the real killer? Next time on The Real Killer. And I just remember thinking, if we can't bring Rodney home, what are we even doing? 
Should I even be a lawyer anymore? Then a controversy and a call no one sees coming. I'm like, what's wrong? She said, well, I just called the prison to talk to your dad because he never called this morning. And when I asked them why my client hadn't called, they told me he couldn't. What is happening to Rodney Lincoln? Jack was the moment I was more confused than any time in my life. I felt like a body in limbo. Limbo was in a very nice place. The Real Killer is a production of AYR Media and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Leah Rothman. Executive producers Leah Rothman and Aliza Rosen for AYR Media. Written by me, Leah Rothman. Senior Associate Producer Eric Newman. Editing and sound design by Cameron Taggy. Mixed and mastered by Cameron Taggy. Audio engineering by Jesus C. Mario. Studio engineering by Tom Weir and Kelly McGrew. Legal counsel for AYR Media, Gianni Douglas. Executive producer for iHeartRadio, Chandler Mays. If you're enjoying The Real Killer, tell your friends about it and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.